0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.
1: It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. The war continues between Israel and Hamas. Today, we are talking about the history that led to today. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. Holy Land and Politics will talk about the issues leading
2: up to this war. The core of the conflict doesn't have that much to do with the sacredness of the land. Uh, the conflict that we're dealing with and that we are um That continues until today has much more recent origins.
1: Plus, we'll talk about the foundational trauma both Israelis and Palestinians faced and ways Israelis and Palestinians can end the conflict. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.
1: It's been four weeks since violence escalated into war between Israel and the militant group Hamas. The group, which has been in control of the Gaza Strip since 2006, carried out an unprecedented attack in various Israeli communities, killing 1,400 Israeli civilians and kidnapping 240 people. As Israel reacts with relentless attacks on Gaza and Palestinian residents there, the United Nations is now warning that Palestinians in the region are at grave risk of genocide. The Ministry of Health in Gaza reported that since October 7th, More than 10,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli airstrikes. This conflict stems from a century-long struggle over land and the people who live on it. Today, it remains one of the most divisive issues of our time. So how did we get here? To help us understand the historical roots of this conflict amidst the horrors and trauma that continue to unfold in the Middle East is Professor Farid Abdel Noor, He is the chair of the Political Science Department at San Diego State University. He specializes in political theory, Middle Eastern politics, and Palestinian-Israeli relations. Professor Abdel Noor, welcome. Thank you. Also, Professor Suzanne Hillman joins us. She holds a PhD in modern European history with an emphasis on Jewish Germany. She also teaches the history of the Holocaust and the Middle East at SDSU. Professor Hillman, welcome to you.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: So we know Palestine holds great religious significance for Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Professor Hillman, I want to start with you. What makes the land sacred to so many?
3: Uh, That's a big question. Well, uh, I would say, of course, it goes back to um, Jews' long, long relationship uh, and connection to this land. Uh, More than 2000 years ago, uh, Jews had a state in the region, which eventually was taken over by the Romans, and uh, eventually this led to the diaspora. But uh, even during the diaspora, the t- almost 2000 year long diaspora, the you know, the term we use to explain um, the dispersal of Jews into many countries outside of Palestine. Palestine has never, never quite lost its uh, emotional appeal. So it is a religious appeal, but it's also an emotional appeal. Uh, Jerusalem is the city where uh, the temple stood, first the first temple, then the second temple before its destruction. And it is central to the Jewish way of thinking of being
1: in the world. And Professor Abdel Noor, how do you understand that history?
2: So the the sacredness of Palestine applies to the three Abrahamic religions, in addition to Judaism that uh, Dr. Hillman talked about. Christian, for Christianity, Palestine is sacred, and for Islam, Palestine is sacred. What I'd like to point out, though, is that the sacredness of the land, while always central to its history in the last more than 2,000 years, has not been a cause necessarily of conflict between these communities. That the land was sacred to all these three communities, and these three communities, for the bulk of this history that we're talking about with some interruptions during the Crusades, uh, these three communities were able to live there peacefully in peaceful coexistence. So the the core of the conflict doesn't have that much to do with the sacredness of the land. Uh, the conflict that we're dealing with and that we are um, that continues until today has much more recent origins than that and is not bound in any competing sacredness.
1: So, as we know it today, Israel's origins are traced back to the Zionist movement, which pushed for the creation of an independent Jewish state. Can you define what Zionism is and when it first emerged, Professor Hillman?
3: Yes, gladly. Uh, Zionism first emerged uh, in the Europe towards the tail end of what uh, historians call the Age of Nationalism. The Age of Modern Nationalism really began with the French Revolution in 1789, And Zionism was kind of a latecomer to this. Um, And here I want to emphasize that persecution or persecution of Jews in Europe, where the bulk of them lived, was a major factor uh, behind this movement and ideology. There was the, the need, the strongly felt need for a place somewhere on the globe, not necessarily Palestine initially, where Jews would be safe from persecution. Zionism, I also would like to mention, uh, is an extremely, was, definitely was, and also still is to this day, an extremely diverse movement. Not all Zionists aimed for the establishment of a state. Um, The cultural Zionists uh, hoped to establish a cultural center in Palestine, uh, whatever that uh, might have looked like. Uh, So the history of Zionism is definitely... um, It's far from monolithic, and that's an important point to keep in mind. Well, does
1: the the goal of Zionism back then reflect the goals of Zionism and the Zionist movement now? Um, Up to a point.
3: One key point to make is that Zionism has evolved, right? The political Zionists eventually who sought international recognition of the Jewish settlement in Palestine, they eventually uh, achieved their aim. Israel uh, was, or the, the establishment of Israel was uh, decided at the, the United Nations in the fall of 1947. And uh, a bit later, David Ben Gurion um, uh, declared Israel's independence. Uh, there are, of course, Zionists uh, more increasing, more um, recently since the Six Day War in 1967, who have espoused uh, this uh, specifically religious Zionism. And uh, this has, this religious Zionism has led to widespread settlement, Jewish settlement in the occupied territories of the West Bank. And uh, this is probably something that um, Professor Abdel-Nur could talk about, how um, problematic this settlement has been to Palestinian aspirations uh, for nationhood. And uh, religious settlers, uh, many of them, not all, but many of them, uh, they believe in a greater Israel. They completely believe in uh, the Jewish land being sacred. Greater Israel means uh, an Israel that would encompass Uh, all of Israel, uh, including the West Bank, including the Gaza Strip. So um, I would say the initial, uh, the early political Zionists, as well as labor Zionists, they would have a hard time recognizing today's Zionism, especially of the religious uh, variation.
1: Yeah. And Professor Abdel Noor, you mentioned that this conflict is not so much about the sacredness of the land. So what role does Zionism play in this conflict? And how did Palestinians react to Zionist calls to create a Jewish national home?
2: So when when Zionism emerges and its goals are uh, are are made public uh, to the people to the indigenous population of Palestine, the indigenous population at the time that the Zionist movement arose and and called for that establishment of a of a Jewish state in Palestine, the overwhelming population of Palestine was overwhelmingly Muslim and uh, with a large Christian minority and a smaller but also significant Jewish minority. So the Zionist movement declared its goal of establishing a Jewish state, uh, originally homeland and later state in Palestine at a time when the people who are living in Palestine were overwhelmingly did not identify as Jewish. And they immediately recognized Zionism as an existential threat to their very being and they resisted it. They resisted it in all kinds of ways. So the question, ultimately, the conflict arises because here's this European movement that wishes to establish a a state with a particular ethno-religious identity on a land where the overwhelming population, a majority of the population does not have that identity. So Zionism from the beginning faced a challenge what to do with the indigenous population. So the indigenous population from the beginning uh, recognized that Zionism was probably gonna try to get rid of them. And unfortunately the history of this conflict has been the history of the encounter between an indigenous population and a movement from Europe with the support of Britain, uh, especially during World War I and immediately after in the decades after of the slow dispossession and dispersion eventually of, of the Palestinian people eventually culminating in what Palestinians call their nakba or their catastrophe really the worst thing that has happened to them in their modern history which is when the state of israel was established in the, in 1948 The same set of events that led to its establishment were actually the same set of events that led to the destruction of Palestinian society. Prior to that, Palestine was a thriving society of more than 1,000 towns and villages. Palestine was a thriving economy. Much of its life was focused around the holy city of Jerusalem, but it had many cities, hundreds of villages, and it is that society that ended up being destroyed in the process of establishing the state of Israel. So that's the set of events that led to that, led to the idea that once the state of Israel was established on 78% of the land of historic Palestine, 80% of the Palestinian inhabitants of that land were made into refugees. They were expelled from their homes or fled for their lives. And this is the echo that you're seeing today. And we can talk about that later.
1: We'll continue our conversation about the historical context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the trauma this violence evokes today.
3: My hope had always been that perhaps this um, awareness of having a trauma and the other group also having a trauma, that this might provide um, the ground to build from. You're listening to KPBS
1: Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the Online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the Online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. We're continuing the conversation about the historical roots behind Palestinian-Israeli relations and how the region, which includes Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, came under Israeli occupation. So, Professor Abdel Noor, I want to make sure we understand this correctly. Great Britain pledged the land to the Zionist movement in Europe, so tell us more about that and their role in this occupation.
2: Britain made a promise called the Balfour Declaration in 1917 to the Zionist movement that the Zionist, that Britain would support the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And at that time, Britain did not consult the people who lived in Palestine, the indigenous population of Palestine, and in fact, did everything to sideline them. And and one of the the most important things that Britain did was that it deprived the Palestinians who lived on the land of political rights. It said that they have civil and religious rights, but reserved political rights, which is the right right to self-determination for the Jewish people only now at the time the jewish population of palestine was still a tiny minority but it was that tiny minority that had political rights the right to self-determination and the overwhelming majority was deprived of that right by britain when britain came to control palestine after the league of nations uh, gave it mandatory power over palestine at the end of world war one and after the collapse of the ottoman empire The Balfour Declaration was incorporated into the mandatory uh, document that gave Britain that power. And then Britain proceeded to try to realize that goal of helping establish a Jewish homeland, later a Jewish state in Palestine, while sidelining and really downgrading the status of the indigenous Palestinian population.
3: One thing I would like to mention is that it is my understanding that under the mandate, which, of course, Britain did uh, gain and impose, Britain made certain attempts to create governing institutions that would have involved both uh, Zionists and uh, Arabs. Uh, but the, Arabs, uh, the local Arabs did refuse to accept the mandate. So while the Jewish settlers were able to establish a sort of proto-government, uh, uh, institutions that would subsequently morph into the government of Israel. Uh, there was no such attempt on the Palestinian side. Also, and uh, I'm sure uh, Professor Abdel Nur knows a lot more about this, uh, but there were uh, divisions among uh, leading Palestinian families, uh, which didn't help the situation. So I wanted to throw that in. Uh, one more thing that I um, always find problematic um, when I hear accounts like the one just given, is that it completely seems to um, occlude the fact that we're talking now about the 20s and the 30s, that Zionist settlers in Palestine, many of them were actually not pioneers who adamantly wanted to uh, settle on this new land. They were refugees. Uh, Hitler came to power in 1933 and increasingly he um, implemented measures that made life in uh, Nazi Germany uh, intolerable and eventually um, lethal to Jews. And Palestine was one of the few destinations uh, across the world that did accept uh, settlers starting in 1939. And this was after three years of the, the Great Arab Revolt Britain actually did kind of cave in a little bit to the Arab side and restricted uh, Jewish immigration. So I would generally like to be to see a little bit more um, nuance. Uh, I would suggest we shouldn't look at the, the time period from the beginning of the mandate to the end of World War II as as unchanging. So I think we do need to keep this in mind, although it does not change the fact that, of course, Palestinians ended up suffering from uh, the arrival of these European
2: Jews. I'd like to um, think about it that the suffering doesn't have to do with the arrival of European Jews. The suffering has to do with the political program that they had. Palestine had room for Jews to come. If Jews were coming to Palestine to live in Palestine, to be part of the society, that would be one one way to think about it. Unfortunately, what Britain and the mainstream Zionist movement at the time were planning for Palestine was something different. And that's why it was so difficult, really impossible, for the Palestinian Arab population to accept the mandate. Because to accept the mandate would be to accept their future dispossession. It would be to accept that they would there would be a state in that land in which they don't have political rights. So part of the part of why it was so hard for Palestinian Arabs to cooperate with the British to establish self-governing bodies was that the British always insisted on the terms of the Balfour Declaration as part of what's involved. And the Balfour Declaration was, of course, completely unacceptable to the Palestinians. So I I, I think it's a very important uh, point that Dr. Hillman points out about the mandate. There's a real turning point in 1939, but really the turning point is 1936, because it is in 1936 that the Palestinian Palestinian Arab rebellion that that, that you mentioned uh, takes place. That's when the Palestinians start with a general strike against Britain. Britain suppresses this rebellion brutally. It arms and trains Zionist paramilitary groups to suppress this rebellion and imports into Palestine during those three years from 1936 to 1939, stations more British troops in Palestine than it had stationed in India. To crush this brutally. That ended up decimating the Palestinian political leadership, which ultimately was was either uh, killed or exiled during this three year period. But one other thing, one very important thing happened uh, in 1937 was that when the British investigated, well, what's the cause of this rebellion? And the outcome of that was something that's called the Peel Commission proposal. The Peel Commission concluded that one way to solve this problem was to partition the land. But one key thing about this proposal was that it revealed, and it revealed with great clarity, a clarity that nobody can deny in retrospect, that there was no way to carve up the country, no matter how you carved it up, to establish a Jewish majority state in any part of it that would have been acceptable to the Zionist movement without doing severe harm to the Palestinian population, and in that proposal, expelling hundreds of thousands of them. So in 1937, it became clear how incompatible the ideas of the Zionist movement were, the mainstream Zionist movement, with the rights and interests of the indigenous population, that they were in direct conflict, and that this project could only be realized by harming them severely and decimating them, decimating their society, And their rights.
1: And so, Professor Hillman, was there any consideration given to that?
3: Another excellent question. Um, By and large, I would have to say not much. There were some minor efforts to establish, um, well, there were some minor efforts such as uh, the group Bridge Shalom, which means Covenant of Peace, uh, which included uh, philosophical luminaries like Martin Buber, uh, efforts to think what it would mean to have uh, to coexist peacefully the problem with these efforts and they were never very large is that uh, they were rejected by the dominant zionist society as well as uh, the arab society so by and large my answer has to be uh, no Uh, some zionists uh, definitely recognized that what was happening would uh, be well, a great hardship to Palestinians, to put it that way. Uh, even the revisionist Zionist uh, Zev Jabotinsky, um, he recognized that ultimately this conflict was probably not solvable. He understood that from the, if he were a Palestinian, he would reject um, this uh, immigration into his country as well. Uh, he recognized that, but he, of course, he felt that he had... Um, He was concerned with the jewish situation not with the palestinian situation and so nothing really was done to to address uh, the problem of coexistence i would also like to just go back uh, to the beginning of the zionist movement from the beginning uh, there were a few voices uh, such as usher ginsburg he was an eastern european cultural zionist he did not believe in the establishment of a state just a cultural center He visited Palestine in the late 19th century, and he observed that some Jewish settlers or Zionist settlers were, well, dismissive and worse towards uh, the local Arab. And he was concerned about that. But this was always a, a minority position. And again, I want to reiterate that from the Zionist perspective, what mattered was to renew Jewish life, to become normalized, have a state eventually. And also to escape persecution.
2: Can I uh, jump in on this? Because I think this is also an opportunity to think about the future. Sometimes people look at the past and say, a minority movement, you know, why should we pay attention to it? But actually, this minority movement had it right. Coexistence was possible within the framework of that minority movement. It's the mainstreams that got it wrong. And my dear colleague, uh, Jonathan Grobart, has recently written a book on this called Jewish Self-Determination Beyond Zionism. And it's 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 a book that reflects on how one can retrieve the promise that was dismissed as utopian or as impractical of, of this minority movement uh, within Zionism, as in fact the hope for the future. Because these people can coexist, their lives are intertwined, their attachment to the land is deep, both of them, to all of the land, their attachment is deep. And somehow we have to imagine ways in which their coexistence can be dignified and equal. Of course, this isn't what happened. And I know I hear myself as I'm saying this as if I'm living in la-la land while what's happening in Gaza is happening. But I don't feel like I am. I feel like we have to dare to think outside of the the strictures of what we are told we have to think.
1: In all of this, and I'm not surprised by Britain's involvement and, and what you're saying sounds very familiar in that it's happened across the globe. So my question is, what role does the dehumanization of Palestinians play in this?
2: If I may sort of jump in on this, you can see that from Lord Balfour himself. Lord Balfour, when he was questioned, simply said that, you know, the Zionist movement had world historical goals, these cannot be compared to the interests and rights of, of these some, a few hundred people living on the land, that those can be dismissed. So this, this is the age of colonialism we're talking about. It was the age in which Europeans could think of themselves as genuinely superior. At best, they thought of themselves as coming to civilize the barbarians, and that it would be a favor of the Palestinians living on the land, that Europeans were coming, and that they didn't think like at some point, many of the British and other European thinkers just thought the Palestinians should just get out of the way. They don't understand political rights anyway. What would they know about a political right? So there is a, I I, I don't like to throw around words that that have very deep uh, emotional valence here, but there is a racism, a deep racism to which Palestinians were subjected. Now, I'm not saying it was intentional, but they were treated as racially inferior and that their rights don't matter. Ultimately, they were an obstacle. They were an impediment to a grand and beautiful dream and a project. And as an impediment, they could be treated as dismissible and disposable. And the way they experienced their history is that's exactly how they were treated. They were just treated like you can sweep them away to make way for a more worthy political entity. Professor um,
3: Abdel Nour mentioned how uh, the Jewish and Palestinian destiny, although that's not the word you used, was uh, intimately uh, intertwined and of course that's true just listening to you about the dehumanization of the palestinians made me think that of course this is exactly what happened in the worst possible way to the jews of europe uh under hitler and uh collaborators in uh non-german countries the jews were literally um well eventually singled out for extermination right there was supposed to be no spot on on the globe where they were allowed to live. Of course, we do know that some Jews escaped the Holocaust. Uh, some had emigrated to the United States before that. But so uh, my hope had always been that this common experience of profound dehumanization, which of course it was different uh, historically speaking, uh, the Nakba is not the same as the Holocaust, but they're both. They were foundational traumas for both peoples. My hope had always been that perhaps this um awareness of having a trauma and the other group also having a trauma, that this might provide um the ground to build from. And um you mentioned Professor Graubart's book before. I too um I would like to see uh the you know the tradition of an organization like Bridge Shalom to be revived. These were people, smart people, who were thinking about what it would mean to actually coexist. And um, it it is a tradition worthy of um, rescuing because it has been largely forgotten.
1: Coming up, we continue this conversation with Professors Abdel Noor and Hillman on the historical trauma of war and what they see as an end to conflict in the region
2: it can serve as a moment of clarity that these two people have to find a way of living together that involves their agreement to live together and the conditions under which they can agree to live together.
1: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm continuing the conversation with SDSU professors Farid Abdel-Noor and Suzanne Hillman, so, you've both spoken about this, but how is the violence today evoking historical trauma for Palestinians and Israelis?
3: For better or worse, well, mostly for worse in my mind, uh, this violence is conjuring images of the Holocaust. And unfortunately, over the decades, uh, one Israeli government or another has used and abused the Holocaust for its own uh, purposes. The Holocaust occupies uh, a very um, strong place in the Israeli consciousness. And it has sometimes this, yeah, this has been abused. Um, I've been struck by uh, how often I have read in the various media, this is the worst, the bloodiest day for Jews since the Holocaust. Factually, this is true, but uh, what's been going on cannot in any meaningful way, his- I'm speaking as a historian, cannot in any meaningful way be compared to the Holocaust. Uh, during the Holocaust, the Jews literally were friendless and hopeless and helpless, uh, and six million uh, ended uh, losing their lives. They had no state of their own. They had no allies, nothing of the sort. Uh, the way the situation stands today, uh, and I'm not an expert on this, but um, Israel Israel's existence does not seem to be threatened to me. However, in the mind of Israelis and Jews elsewhere, uh, this attack, which should not have happened because Israel has a powerful um, military, uh, good intelligence service, and so forth. So it came as such a profound shock that it did raise the specter of the Holocaust in people's mind. And again, I think while as a historian, I, I strongly reject analogies between what is happening now with what was happening during the Holocaust. Psychologically speaking, I can understand up to a point why people are making these comparisons, but it is not helpful. Um, Ultimately, it is not a helpful analogy. And Professor Abdel Noor?
2: The echoes for Palestinians are the echoes of the Nakba of 1948. Um, When you think that hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were pushed out of their homes. They were dispossessed, dispersed, made into a people of refugees, concentrated in ever smaller pieces of land. Just to give you the example of Gaza, Gaza city was a flourishing city before 1948. It was the center to which the people from the villages and towns in the entire neighboring area, they went to, to do all their necessary administrative work, etc. The Gaza city and its immediate surroundings in 1948 had to host, for every Gazan, had to host more than two, two to three Palestinian refugees, which made Gaza such an overcrowded place. So, Here is this place in which Palestinians have been concentrated and similar processes have been taking place in the West Bank, where Israel's increasingly moving people out of the area area called Area C and pushing them out of Area C, concentrating them into what's called Area A, into smaller and smaller, denser areas of Palestinian population and surrounding them by Israeli settlements. So this, this sense that the Nakba actually never stopped, that the dispossession never stopped and that Palestinians have for 75 years been pushed into smaller, like the land is taken away from them and they're pushed into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces of land. We see it in front of our eyes when when half of Gaza is immediately told by the Israeli military to evacuate into the southern half. Gaza, one of the most densely populated places on earth, suddenly was made doubly dense and then put under siege in the midst of this war. So Mm. this is the Nakba in front of us. Gaza has been, the northern part of Gaza is being partially depopulated. Mm -hmm. And then we hear credibly that the Israeli government has actual plans, now whether it will act on them or not, has actual plans in place for pushing the Palestinian people out of Gaza, into Egypt, thereby, if you will, completing their ethnic cleansing from Palestine. As we hear that the United Nations saying that they are in grave danger of genocide, these are absolutely terrifying moments for Palestinians. This is is a moment in which Palestinians feel like their entire history is getting condensed into this moment.
1: Mm-hmm. And Professor Hillman, you were wanting to add something to that? Uh,
3: yes, I was uh, I was thinking the way I see it for Israel, Professor Abdel-Nur just mentioned that uh, for Palestinians, the Nakba in a sense never stopped. And, and now uh, we may see the culmination or th- this is how uh, people feel on the ground. And I was thinking for Israelis, the establishment of the state kind of provided breathing space, if I can put it that way, at least for several decades. Uh, the The belief that now we are safe, there is a place from which we can no longer be um, forced out, and I think what October seventh has done is to kind of um, it has laid open this um, uh, this this confidence to be an illusion. Again, I'm trying to summarize what I hear uh, people saying, uh, both uh, from Israel, but also Jews in America. And the situation cannot be compared to uh, what the Palestinians are undergoing currently in Gaza, which I think is absolutely horrifying, inhumane. I don't have enough words. But uh, for the traumatized population of Israel, this is this seems to be how many of them are processing what's happening. We are now there is no more safe Israel for us. So um I, I see another sort of even a distorted com- commonality here if, if that makes sense.
2: I hope can I just add uh, here I hope and I know this is not what's happening around us because we all see what's happening around us. but I'm an eternal optimist. I hope that this moment can also serve as a moment of clarity. It can serve as a moment of clarity that these two people have to find a way of living together that involves their agreement to live together and the conditions under which they can agree to live together. Rather than finding ways of one side imposing terms of coexistence on the other that the other is either free to accept or reject. The inability of one of the largest armies in the region, one of the most sophisticated security services in the region, the Israeli one, to foresee and to stop what happened on October 7th is a reminder that living behind an iron wall should not be the aspiration. The aspiration is to live as an accepted, welcome cohabitant of the land rather than one who imposes oneself on the others.
3: Yeah, although I am I'm a European I'm I'm pessimistic by nature, not that all Europeans are but um so I I have less optimism but what could give me optimism? up to, well, a certain degree, is uh, especially young Jews, young American Jews, who have come out in countless numbers in recent years, and especially also since October 7th, basically recognizing that things cannot continue, or they should not continue the way they are, because Palestinians uh, continue to suffer uh, in ways that are not compatible with um. The way uh young jews think well they're not compatible with with moral consideration they are frankly immoral uh the conditions so uh, i think that is the new generation younger people people who are um part of an organization like j street for example or jewish voice for peace which is more on the left and uh, some people in the jewish community would not accept j street as um, a legitimate organization but these are organizations attracting many young people uh, that are uh, deeply committed to um, a peaceful coexistence and justice for the palestinians so that that would give me hope on the other hand um pessimist that i am i'm thinking of uh the increasing power of religious settlers Um, We have heard, uh, Farid, you mentioned that briefly, what's been going on in the West Bank, um, more settler attacks on Palestinians. And unfortunately, I think this fairly small number of extremist settlers, about 20,000, they have the ear and the support of some uh, far-right figures in the Israeli government, and um, they are uh, vocal and not willing to compromise. So I'm, I guess I'm both pessimistic and optimistic, depending on where on the globe I look at currently. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, the reality of what's going on weighs heavy and it's very real for so many people. Any advice on how to cope with these events and any advice on how the broader community can support those who are, are deeply and directly impacted?
3: As an educator, I would like to say, first and foremost, educate yourself. Of course, a historian would say this, but I do strongly, strongly believe that, uh, first of all, we need to, this is not a, an immediate term solution, but if we want to understand what is happening, why there is such a, a sense of fear and mistrust, uh, distrust uh, on all sides, uh, the first thing we can do is actually educate ourselves on uh maybe beginning with uh the history of jews in europe or zionism and then their arrival in palestine and then also uh, the palestinian uh, palestinian resistance to this uh i firmly believe that um to move forward we need to uh, people need to see that there is we're not talking about one foundational trauma we're talking about two and so i think there is space. It, it, this is more of a sense, a vague sense that I have. I, I haven't conducted any surveys, but I think there is space, maybe a small one, for people who really would like to learn more, and that includes students, to come together—Palestinian um, students, Jewish students, or just anybody who wants to, to learn more about this, who would like to support those who are currently suffering and and afraid. So education not rely on the soundbite approach, you know, and not rely on, uh, well, news sources that are not not reliable. And that uh, brings me to a point I wanted to make at the beginning. I think it is uh, wonderful that you are offering this forum for an extended conversation uh, of something that is a a really very, very complex um, history. And uh, it's rare these days that you get that kind of thing. So thank you.
1: Oh, we, we are more than happy to do it. And so glad that you both are willing. Before we go, Professor Abdel Noor, do you have anything else to add?
2: Yeah, I, first of all, I really agree. I agree with everything that um, that Suzanne, Suzanne just said. I feel like this is a moment in which universities have to rise to the occasion. And for universities to be able to rise to the occasion, they have to be very vigilant about protecting academic freedom and the freedom of expression and protecting the space in which people can dare to disagree on matters that that are very emotionally significant for them. For example, on the question of Zionism, right? People should be able to disagree about whether they think it's a worthy movement it's not a worthy movement. Was it dangerous? Is it, a, is it an important movement? What we can't have is people shutting down debate by tainting certain directions of argument as unacceptable and therefore silencing them. It is uh, in, in in the American academic context, it's really the, pellet, the voices that are that speak Uh, from understanding the Palestinian experience that often find themselves in danger of being silenced. Silenced, I mean by either governmental entities, sometimes by university administrations, thankfully we haven't had that at San Diego State uh, this time, or silenced by colleagues. So it's important not to taint people, but to actually engage in the kind of open conversation That begins from the assumption that you are talking to somebody in good faith. How do you ensure that people talk in good faith? I only know one way. To speak oneself in good faith. And then just hope that the other person is also speaking in good faith. Always assume the other person is speaking in good faith. That's always a beginning. You begin with the assumption of equal humanity. You begin with the assumption that there is nothing to distrust about the other person. If they misspoke, it's because maybe they don't understand and you can help them understand rather than jumping down their throat. I don't know what else we can do other than just begin with these places. One more thing to keep in mind, we must be cognizant that the communities on our campuses and elsewhere also feel an affinity to their siblings back home in the old country. And they're going to want to organize in in ways that, that that show solidarity to their siblings back home. And we should leave room for that. We shouldn't hold that against them. We should allow them to do that. And in some ways, perhaps encourage it, as long as it's done in a way that does not impinge on the ability of others to do the same.
1: It's all great advice. I've been speaking with San Diego State professors Varid Abdel Noor and Suzanne Hillman. Thank you so much for joining us. And for educating us and having this conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at five for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening.